And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us for my favorite time, my favorite part of the show, the interview. And this one will not disappoint. This is a showdown, right? A roundtable <laughs> smackdown. With but I, I was trying to I, I was, before I introduce you. Well, without further ado, we're joined with Mr. Uh, Harrison Cuppy here of of Praetorian Capital. Uh, Cuppy's a friend of the show, been on multiple times, and so it's just great to have you back, Cup. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us, man. Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm excited for this one it's for the fun. for the SmackDown, right? Uh, Chase was, <laughs> Chase was joking around yesterday in the Daily Dots thing that we put out. He's like, "Yeah, I'm wearing my Ric Flair outfit in there. We're getting after it. It's going to be like an old WWE stare down, right?" Um, uh, the only the only SmackDown is thirty years. <laughs> oh, you know we own some duration, don't you? You're sticking it to us. Uh, I'm sorry for you not guys. Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> we just dipped our toe in it. Right at five. Right. So far, we've been right. Okay, with with our duration play. Um, okay. After we we held on to TLT a little too long this year, but um, yeah, we've been getting it's it's been a it's been a fun deal. And uh, as always, we've got. Chase Taylor, our head of research, joining us. But the, the, the point of this interview, just to set this up for the listeners a little bit, is um, I was trying to – Cuppy, I was trying to explain it in, in the market update part of the show, kind of giving people a, a heads up for what's coming. And I was like, if you looked at our portfolios, you probably wouldn't think we do disagree because I think that there's far more that we agree on. But we we do disagree on the path that that we're going to be taking um, over the next year and a half. And our listeners clearly know what we think. So I wanted to start off with just telling us uh, what your macro outlook is over the next, let's call it year, year and a half, two years, whatever the deal is, and where you think we're headed with rates, where you think the economy is headed. Just kind of and uh, lay that out and then also your reasoning behind it. And um, and then we'll we'll have Chase kind of respond back, and we'll see where it goes. But I, I first, I want everybody to understand: it's not that you're pounding on the desk saying this is the dawn of a new beautiful American bull market. You've got a different outlook, but for different reasons than most people think. So why don't you lay that out for us? Yeah, sure. I mean, actually, I think most risk assets are going to have a miserable year or two ahead of them. Uh, but I think that's because uh, rates are going up, and eventually. Things are, you know, priced on an earnings multiple, and uh, with with interest rates going higher, I mean, I think uh, most equity prices are going lower. Uh, my macro view is really a, a tale of uh, two markets. It's two narratives. Uh, you know, I, I think you need to start by remembering that in uh, 1975, uh, Manhattan went bankrupt. And the center of economic activity in the United States was effectively Dallas. Um, and there's been a 50-year cycle towards the wealth going to the coasts. And that's mainly driven by interest rates going down. And it's financing industries that uh, proliferate on the coasts. Uh, everything tied to a cap rate, whether it's commercial real estate, private equity, VC. Uh, you know, the center of economic activity right now in the United States is either San Francisco because of the VC or it's Manhattan because of private equity. And I, I think, you know, it's been a 50-year cycle towards the coasts, and it's created a lot of very high-paying jobs in the coast, and it's created a lot of economic wealth for people. And that cycle is turning, and, you know, I think that's the reason everyone keeps crying that we're having a recession, and everyone thinks that the world is terrible, because the guys on the coast, the, the, the one percenters and really the point one percenters who make all their money on asset appreciation of, of their assets tied to, to, to interest rates, they're having a bad go of it for two years in a row now where their assets going down, but at the same time, all their expenses in their life, you know, their nanny and their second home and their gardener and their private school, that, that's all having an inflation. And so for the first time in their professional careers, they're getting squeezed on both sides where uh, their assets are going down and their expenses are going up. And I think on the other side of that, you see the other 99% of the population, at least the ones not on the coast tied to these industries, are getting huge uh, wage increases. I mean, we're invested in a lot of companies that are in middle America. And, you know, no matter what the industry is, their backlogs are at 10, 20 year highs and they can't get labor. They can't get people. The people don't exist or they don't want to work because uh, everyone wants to you know, be, be a social influencer on Twitter and you know, drink their latte and air conditioning. And no one wants to 
grab a weld torch and actually do stuff. And I think you need wages to go up high enough that you suck people back into middle America doing the jobs that people need to do. And I think a lot of this is really being driven just by, you know, reshoring, onshoring, you know, all that narrative. But it's really being driven by 8% fiscal. Uh, we're 8% fiscal in the boom, which means you're teens fiscal in uh, the coming recession that we'll eventually have. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to think the fiscal narrative trumps everything else. I think, Chase, with your uh, lag reaper, I think you've done great work. I, I really enjoy it, actually. And I think you've almost, I mean, just reading between the lines, I think you've been a bit surprised by how long uh, it's taken to uh, have the recession that I think you, you, you expect. And I think it's that fiscal just keeps overwhelming uh, the, the other uh, aspects. And I, I think, you know, you, you've, you know, I think identified some of the reasons why it hasn't worked. Where you know you have corporates that borrowed money in 2021 at two percent, three percent, and they're putting the money to work at five percent, and so rates don't matter to them. And I think you can say the same thing about everyone who did a HELOC in uh, you know 2021 and put it all into money markets. Like there's some of these lagging things that'll eventually catch up, and you know, the catch up might still be a year or two in the future. I think you're going to get your recession, but I think your recession is going to be centered in Manhattan and San Francisco and all these coastal cities where you know. What happens in rates to determines the jobs market and determines a lot of the economy. I'm telling you, like our economy is booming, and I'll go into the debate part in a second. But I want to give you a narrative. Uh, you know, we've had a bunch of our companies report Q3 uh, numbers, and you know, we're looking at stuff like aerospace, for instance, where. Uh, you know, you look at the backlog that Boeing has and you look at all the components manufacturers and you look at what's going to go into all the military as we restock everything. I mean, the capital of America might end up being Huntsville, Alabama. And, you know, you, a good friend of mine runs an MRO uh, and he was telling me that in 2019 he was paying 20 bucks an hour, 25 bucks an hour. And, you know, this isn't like uh, welding where you could take a course for a couple hours and, you know, you can go weld. You know, this is something where you need tons of uh, licensing to work on aircraft. It takes many years to get these uh, certifications. And these guys were in their 60s. And they all retired during COVID. And if they were in the early 60s in 2019, they're mid-late 60s now and they're retiring. And my, my friend said that when demand came back in 2022 and 23 for MRO work, uh, he tried to hire these guys back and they didn't want to work at 25 an hour. And they didn't want to work at 35 an hour. And then one of his competitors started offering 50 an hour. And I said, what'd you do? He goes, well, there's only so many workers. I, I bid 60 an hour. He bid against me and I bid back again because we're fighting over the same people. And I said, so what happens to your contracts? He goes, we just go to the airlines and say, this is the new number. Take it or leave it. And the airlines are like, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. They're like, we'll, we'll just pay you more. And I think that's the inflation you're seeing. That's also just the, the wage growth you're seeing. And, and that, that trickles through to everything else. And I think my final point is if you put a million dollars right now in my checking account, I'm a finance guy from the coast, effectively. I don't know how to do anything except buy Q-sips because I have everything I want and need. I'm just going to buy more Q-sips. That's the only thing I know how to do. If you put $100 into some middle-class guy's uh, wallet, he's going to take his wife out to dinner. That $100 is going to go to tip money. The whole staff at the restaurant is going to go out for uh, drinks afterwards. It's going to cycle through the economy a few different times. And I think that's what you've seen with fiscal. And that's what you're seeing with uh, my friend's MRO workers. And that's why the economy just stays so, so strong. But yeah, I, I understand your lag reaper. And I do think it's going to come. I, I just it, it's lagged. Yeah. I mean, sorry, I'm, ra I'm rambling. No, 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 no. I, you know, I, it's, it's funny. Like I said, I don't think that we disagree on on where we're headed. I just, I guess the disagreement is probably more on the timeline. Chase, why don't you answer back to what, uh, what Cuppy was just saying and kind of lay out your thesis and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the particulars. Yeah, sure. So to me, like, I, I agree with a, a ton of what Cuppy says. I just think a lot of it is better at explaining where we just came from maybe even where we're at versus where we're heading. Um, like, Take take wage wage gains for example. I mean, those peaked out at over seven percent, and now they're down to like five. So you're already two percent off the highs, and everything that was driving wage gains to me is is letting up. You know, whether that's any data you want to pull on 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 the labor market at this point is weakening. It's it's going it's going down. Whether that's people quitting their jobs, the wage gap between people quitting their jobs and keeping their jobs, um, the number of people entering the labor force. In the last six months, they couldn't find a job. It's eight hundred thousand. So, like that puts a lot of downward pressure on wages. 
So, I mean, you just look at a chart of wages, they went straight up. So like, it has definitely played a big factor. And to Cuppy's point, like that, that is still like cycling through and, and it's still pushing its way through. Um, but, but when I look at the, the end impact on the economy, at the end of the day, it comes down to how much money people are spending. Um, and we gave people a shocking amount of money. I, I, I still, I still don't think people grasp how much money we gave people. So, uh, so yeah, like to, to Cuppy's point that lag can be long and, and it has been, and Cuppy's right in, in the fact that it's lasted longer than I, I thought, but the, the key mistake there for me was just the, the most basic thing in the world. And it's, and it's, we talked about it a lot on the show, but rates don't matter until you have to pay them and no one really had, had to pay them. And even now, like it, it's, it's only just starting to like really hit. And we see it with um, interest, interest costs as a percentage of disposable income. I mean, it, it stayed crazy low, and but now all of a sudden it's a rocket ship. So, um, as far as the coasts versus um, the rest of the country, I think I think a lot of that's right. I used to work with some uh, some rocket companies that do a lot of work down in uh, in Huntsville. So I understand the power of a government contract and what it can do for for local economies for sure. After all the years working for for Uncle Sam, but at the same time. Um, something that jumped out to me just this week, looking at uh, the New York Fed's consumer credit um, data, is the the so they they actually bunch all the data by state. They tell you every single state what the delinquency rates are, and it's just like a cluster. They're all together, and then there was one state that actually kind of looked worse than the rest, and it, it's Texas. Uh, same thing with if you look at office real estate, maybe maybe the worst market in the country for office real estate right now is Houston, Texas. I mean, that's the energy capital of the country. Since 2014, Houston's been a, a train wreck of office space. I, yeah. I, I think you can't even look at it on a state-by-state basis because, you know, Texas has, you know, Austin has Dallas. Like, those almost... I think, what, I think what you just said is Austin, and that's, that's, that's the problem, yeah. But you have these big cities that act like coastal cities, and then you go 100 miles outside the city and things are just fine. Or even on the, uh, on the periphery, because housing won't slow down. They raised rates and the home builders bought down the mortgages and there's printed money still. Um, I'm amazed. I mean, look at like, uh, you know, I'm looking at like boating, for instance. Like the, the numbers from the boating companies were reasonably good in Q3. Like it's amazing to think guys are financing boats and there's a huge bifurcation because it's the expensive boats that are getting funded. It's not the cheap ones. But you, you just see all these weird data points and they, they raised interest rates and it hasn't mattered yet because the money's sloshing around. I, I think one of the things that has really thrown people for a loop this cycle is that everyone looks at, uh, you know, we're all finance guys, so we live in the real world. But the vast majority of people live in the nominal world. And that's why corporates keep beating because you have, you know, 7% nominal GDP. Well, I mean, if, if you're not growing your revenue 7%, you're like, you're kind of missing. And that's why, you know, all the corporates are beating. That's why there's money everywhere. Like, you have to think yeah, about the, 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 the corporate, corporates always beat. And and right now, revenues are like, a, they're worse than four years versus expectations. So, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, look, look at Malibu boats. The thing's been cut in half. I, I think they were just talking about, it was never someone else on the boating side that was talking about their backlog is actually shrinking. Or Marine Max, be, they, they beat, you know, well, they had okay numbers. I mean, 80, like, 80 something percent beat. <laughs> you'd expect the numbers to be atrocious and they're not bad yet. I mean, I, I I wanted to be short this stuff, and I'm thankful. I mean, it keeps going down, but the numbers are good. Um, what? I just think the economy's strong. What, what, what? So when you're looking at one of the things that we've been talking about, Cuppy, and I'm not sure if you've looked at this data set, so I don't mean to throw you a curveball if you haven't. But one of the things that we were looking at was that typically, and I, I can't remember what the percentage chase was. You can jump in here, but I want to say like 90 percent of the time. Going into recession over the last, what were we looking at? Like 80 years, going back to the Great Depression, I want to say, or right before it. They're like 90% of the time when you went to a recession, the quarter before the recession officially starts, you see a blowout in GDP. And we've seen nominal quarters right before recession started as high as 8, 9, even 11% nominal growth um, right, before, right before a recession hits. And one of the things that we're thinking about is that it looks to us like it has decelerated, like the wage, you know, wages going, I mean, barely, I mean, we're barely taking down, but that rocket ship higher on wages has stalled out to some degree. 
It's decelerating. I, I agree it's decelerating. Uh, I mean, the fiscal is finally slowing down a little. I mean, th there was a time two years ago where they were just handing everyone checks. I mean, I remember my, we were getting checks even. And like, I, I'm the least <laughs> deserving of a government check. I mean, I paid enough into the system to give me my 800 bucks. But, you know, it got to the point, I mean, the first check we got, I, I didn't know what the hell to do with it. Uh, There's nothing you could go buy. All the restaurants were closed. I gave it to my wife. She bought some shoes. When the second check came... I said, you're going to get some more shoes? And she goes, no, nah, I'll just wait for the third check and then we'll get something nicer. Like she just knew there was another one coming already. And they just kept coming every month. I, I don't know. So if you felt and, like you remember like the Oprah, right? The, 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 you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Yeah, I got a check. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe yeah. it. Um, no, but look, it, it, it's decelerating. I get that it's, it's decelerating. I think things are slowing down in some places. Uh, I think you have this bifurcated market. I, I, I really do. I mean, a bunch of industries are just really strong and I don't see them slowing down in the next two years because you can see the backlog numbers. Well, what about, what, okay, mean, but what about the construction industry? So one of the things that we're watching is one of the biggest, you know, one of the leading indicators of recession or, or at least job losses, unemployment rate going up. And, and this kind of gets me into another question, but you know, you start seeing the construction jobs layoff. We're seeing, we're seeing like, for instance, uh, multifamily housing uh, permit, Multifam is going to be a disaster uh, starting about six months from now because they have to finish the projects. Right, right. yeah, the permits are collapsing. But, it's all, but, but single family is just taking up the slack. And then you have all this uh, government-funded infrastructure stuff and factory and everything else is just taking up all the slack. I mean, they're building data centers as fast as they can. I, I mean, I don't know why, but they are. And it's just incredible how much slack it's all taking up. So how... Plus, the government is just spending money everywhere. So the 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 lag. So the the lag effect, I guess. Well, the way we open this up is that I don't think that we've got a disagreement on where we're headed, just in terms of timing. Why do you think? Do you think because of all of that cash sloshing around the economy that that's why the lag is going to be so much longer than normal? Is that is that basically the theory? Is that there's enough cash to where? Because if you start running the numbers, if Pete, you know, I know you know what's going on in commercial office space. But I feel like people can kind of keep going as long as they don't have to refinance something, right? So, why why do you yeah? What do you think keeps it rolling? Is it just that extra? Cash? Look at commercial office. In the end, I mean, you have a guy who has a sliver of equity, and he's not going to be the owner in two years. There's going to be you know Blackstone Distressed Office Fund 19 that owns the thing, and you know. The guy who owns it now, it's really sad for him, but I mean, he, he took a shot on goal with 10% equity. Uh, I don't think what's happening in office is going to, you know, lead to a crisis. The banks are, you know, they, they have plenty of equity. It'll just kind of kick the can. Um, I just think when you run 8% fiscal and neither party seems to care one bit about uh, the recession, that's 8% fiscal. And, you know, they, they put some stuff on top of it each year, you know, for the war. And now we have two wars and maybe we'll have a third or fourth war. Like, you know, we're going into an election. You have the election cycle, so they're going to spend more money. Like, I think 8% fiscal just trumps everything else. It's, it's just so powerful. And what we've learned is that fiscal is really powerful. Like, you know, we're running banana republic sort of balance sheets here. And fortunately, inflation is relatively high. So that, uh, you know, total debt to GDP has kind of stayed constant for the last two years and hasn't totally blown out. But, you know, if the economy slows, like the, you know, the debt to GDP is going to explode. Um, I just think that fiscal is really strong. And I mean, a lot of it is already programs that are funded. The money's there. They just literally can't figure out how to spend this stuff. So you can look at the backlog of these projects. You look at what's getting spent. I, I just think it stays strong. But, you know, the economy is going to be strong in metal bending and welding and aerospace and anything you can use to shoot at Russia. Like, you know, all these industries, like, look at what's going on in oil and gas and just, you know, steel fabrication or, you know, highways and airports and it. it you, know, you just keep going on and on. There's all these industries that are super strong. Like they, they raised interest rates a bunch and auto is even staying up there. I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, gangbusters, but I mean, part of the reason it's not gangbusters, they still can't get enough chips. I mean, the demand for auto is still there, even at current interest rates. I mean, look at RV numbers. Like 
how can RVs, like who the hell wants an RV when oil is 80 and it's going to cost you 8% to fund it? But the numbers are okay. I just don't understand it myself, actually. Who, who's, who's our, I just had a curiosity. I haven't seen the RV numbers. I, I, I just kind of looked past that. Who were you speaking to? to? Was it? We can look at like a Thor. Thor oh, yeah. The I mean, yeah, trailer little, manufacturer, right? Yeah, RV manufacturer. Yeah, I mean, just, just pull, pull up the numbers. I mean, the numbers just weren't bad. I mean, the, the charts are kind of just a big chop fest, but the numbers should have rolled over and they haven't. All right, Chase, go run us through. I want, want you to hit back at that. Specifically what? Well, just what? Well, I mean, <laughs> sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yeah. all good. No, I just want – so the flip side of that, right, the things that we've been looking at, for instance, looking at climbing delinquencies, looking at the amount on those delinquencies yeah. – yeah, del- delinquencies is going to keep climbing. You, you have a two-speed economy. I, I think you have a lot of people in the coastal cities that had happy jobs as realtors or something else that, you know, it, it's going to take a long time for them to realize that, you know, their job went away and isn't coming back. You know, the idea that you could be a stay-at-home mom and, you know, do, you know, three home flips a year and make 200 grand and, you know, be a realtor and make an extra 30 grand in fees that way. Like that, that's over that, that, that game's done. You have to go find an, a new job. And I think you, you're going to see a lot of delinquency uptick as people get repurposed and go find their, you know, their, their new calling in life. I, I, I expect delinquencies. I, I expect we're going to see a lot of the indicators of a recession. It's going to look like a recession. And based on, you know, the fact that as finance guys, we live in the real world, we're probably going to actually statistically call it a recession. And the nominal GDP is just going to keep chugging along. And when uh, the spread between you know, nominal and real starts blowing out because you're you know, an emerging market, and it's just going to play with people's minds. I, I lived in Mongolia for over a decade, which is an emerging market. And we had negative real GDP for, I want to say, 10 years in a Jeez. row. Yet at the end of the thing, you know, 10 years later, everyone had cars. I mean, the traffic got you know, obscene. Uh, interest rates were you know, 2% a month. 3% a month, but they built these big glass office buildings. Like all things moved ahead because nominal was, you know, double digits uh, strong, even though real was negative single digits, uh, negative. And that's just the way, you know, inflationary economies work when you run 20, 30% inflation. And it, it was surprising for me to see it, which I think was part of the reason why I've not been particularly surprised by how this played out here. Oh, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you yeah, off. Yeah, go ahead, Chase. I'm- so when it comes to fiscal, like obviously like that 8% fiscal, like wartime spending at full employment is, is incredibly stimulative. But I think this, this coming quarter is the, the first quarter where that kind of fiscal thrust year over year is actually negative. Um, you know, California didn't pay their taxes for, for a <laughs> long time there and they still haven't fully paid them. And then you go, maybe go into 2024 and corporates are paying more because their rates have gone up. Uh, there's going to be a lot of capital gains because people own the Magnificent Seven this year and they made some money. Um, and then when I look at the the kind of the spending side on, on fiscal and like what the work that's getting done, I think most people that follow markets closely know that manufacturing construction spending chart that just went just straight up. But what I don't what I think a lot of people don't know, because everyone stopped sharing that chart, is it's actually down since May. So we went straight up. And granted, obviously, we're still at a really high level with that that sort of rate of change has completely died out, even on stuff like manufacturing construction. So a lot of the things that have powered us through the last year, even if they're not, you know, diving, I, I, the, the growth in them, the aggressive growth of them, it, like it is. Um, and going back to like the, the coast versus the rest of the country, like if you read like the Fed's beige book, and if you want to just discount that, that's fine. I, I kind of like it because it's very anecdotal. Um, instead of just nerdy model crap the Fed puts out in other places. But the, the weakness in, in Beijing book, a lot of it's coming out of the Midwest. A lot of the worst commentary is coming out of the Midwest. Um, and obviously, you know, we're building a bunch of chip plants and EV battery plants and EV plants. But then, you you know, at the same time, like the sales for, for EVs are slowing. So you're, you're already seeing, I think Ford, I think it was Ford or GM, I can't remember, came out and they're like, yeah, about that next expansion we we're going to do on another one of those plants. We're going to we're going to hold off on that. So I think you're already seeing the returns on some of that stuff coming back bad enough to where they're going to slow down. So this manufacturing capex boom is going to slow down. I would say significantly. I think fiscal has a chance at least of 
if, if not going backwards of it, of at least flatlining to where it's not the impulse it has been. Um, and as far as like looking at uh, the delinquencies we were talking about earlier, I mean, we're at full employment and people f- under 40 years old are having to give back their cars and defaulting on their credit cards at a scale that we haven't, I mean, we haven't seen since the financial crisis. There are even some of those numbers that are about to be higher than at any point during the financial crisis. And we, and we know from listening to like Equifax and these people talk about it, these people literally have jobs and they're doing this. So like to, like to me, the question is what happens, you know, whenever they don't have a job anymore, unless you think that doesn't happen. But if we do get, you know, call it four and a half percent unemployment at some point next year, um, and we're already higher than the fed projected for Q4, um, if people lose their jobs, like how does that, how does that credit cycle not kind of bleed out into other stuff? Well, I think we're going to have a credit cycle. I think you've done an amazing job with, with all your data and I, I really enjoy reading it. it you know, you, you flag tons of just amazing data. And for anyone listening, that's not a subscriber, you know, this is an endorsement. You should subscribe. Um, and I think you're going to see a credit cycle. I think you're going to see unemployment tick up. I think you see all the classic uh, signs of a recession it's probably going to be called a recession because you're going to have negative real GDP. And I think it's just not going to feel so bad. I just feel like that fiscal and maybe, you know, if we're year over year, you know, comping negative on fiscal and it goes from eight to seven, which is possible, then, you know, maybe things will really slow down. But I don't see our government, you know, actually, you know, putting the brakes on anything. Um, I just feel like it's going to be a recession. We're going to call it a recession. But corporates are going to have good numbers mostly, and things are just going to trudge along. And you know, I, I could see you know the S and P five hundred, you know, flat up a little next year. And it's just that we, we do a reweighting, and maybe Mag Seven stops going up. You know, maybe. By the way, the the recent memes on the Mag Seven stuff have been awesome. <laughs> hey, thank you. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm really frustrated. <laughs> Oh, I can tell. <laughs> but like maybe, you know, energy gets an extra 200 bips waiting in the S&P 500 by the end of next year. And maybe some other sectors, you know, uh, aerospace, uh, you know, these sectors that are really, really strong with huge backlogs. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's like, like I think it's going to be called a recession. I think it's going to look like a recession, but I think it's not going to feel like a recession unless, you know, you live in Manhattan, in which case it's probably going to be terrible. So, Copy, let me ask you something a little bit as it relates to the, the positions uh, <clears throat> themselves, the individual positions, because, again, we were chatting about this off the air. I think we have a lot of positions and a lot of thoughts in common. Um, and we've also really enjoyed this year because seven stocks go up. Um when I look, you know what's interesting? I have a lot of friends in this industry. I'm a I'm a guy that collects friends. I don't have a single friend that owns more than two of the seven. I have a few friends that own one of the seven, but I don't have a single friend that runs a hedge fund that owns more than two of the seven. And as a result, not a single one of my friends has uh, had good numbers this year. The only person I know who's having great numbers is my mom because she owns Apple. <laughs> She's outperforming <laughs> me by a couple thousand basis points. <laughs> <laughs> Way to go, mom. So why are these stuff? Because when I look at the when I look at the price action of the market, I I feel like the market is looking at a recession, meaning I think that people and I misguidedly. So I, I think it's you, you, you've seen the memes that the Magnificent Seven are recession proof. I've pointed out Apple's dropped four quarters in a row, which is a record of declining sales supposedly outside of a recession. Um, but so many of these other stocks that, you know, that aren't moving, that are selling off even after beats. I mean, isn't that, I mean, that typically signals recession, doesn't it? Well, look at RSP. Cause uh, you know, that's the equal weight. I think it's a useful thing to look at. Whereas, you know, the IWM has so many unprofitable, you know, science fair experiments. Right, in right. It, but I don't think it's valid anymore. <laughs> Um, but look at RSP. It's basically unch on the year. And, you know, we've seen decent numbers out of most of the companies in the RSP. And, you know, they, they've grown. But in the end, you know, they're starting to price in where the 10s are almost at five now. And, you know, you, you're going to see multiple com- com- contraction. It, 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 the chart looks terrible. It looks like it's about to fall out of bed and drop 20%. But I think that's just, you know, 
a, a re you know valuation of this versus tens like Chase, you have this great chart you've had a couple times now where it shows uh, the earnings multiple and uh, bond yield. And this is like, uh, you know, alligator jaws and it has to close. And, you know, I, I think you guys are of the view more that it closes with, uh, you know, on the rate side. And I'm more of the view that rate rates are going to keep going higher and it closes on the equity side where equities get smashed. And maybe we're both right. I don't know. But OK, this, this gets me to the next question I want to look at. Or, or that I wanted to ask you because, and I don't want to misstate it, but didn't you say that you think that in the next year or so, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the the 10 year will hit six uh, and that you think that it could get as high as eight before this thing reverses. Is that correct? Am I, am I misquoting you? I don't think it reverses. That's, that's the, 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 the part that I'm, I mean, I scare myself sometimes. I just think it, <laughs> it, it fades away. I think, I think this acts a lot like, uh, I don't want to say Argentina because Argentina is a hundred years of basket case. But maybe it acts more like uh, Brazil and it just fades away. And, you know, four becomes the new teens and sometimes it goes to six or seven and sometimes it blows out to 15 and we just hit a new level like we did in the 70s. And there's going to be some sharp bounces along the way. But if you run 8% fiscal um, and you're running uh, 6%, 7% nominal, why should the 10 be a four-handle? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I think it should catch up with the other two. And, you know, maybe not the average of the other two, but 6% is historically where we've been, the midpoint of the last 50 years, and I'm a mean reversion guy. I tend to think we're going to overshoot because I think we've become irresponsible with the balance sheet. <laughs> and, I mean, people have been saying what I'm saying right now for 30 years, and they've been hiding out in gold, and it's, done pretty poorly for them, but I think they're not wrong. They're just early. Okay. So Chase, what, what, and what do you think? Why? And I'll, I've got my thoughts, but you can certainly articulate them. Uh, <clears throat> what, why do you think that we're constrained? Why, why do you think that the 10 year hitting six isn't, isn't doable? I mean, it's not that I don't think no, it's I, I'm sorry. It's yeah. Just, so I guess yeah. the better way to put it would be like, if, if we, I mean, I, from our view, if if you do hit six to us, it would ju- we would be thinking that we're it's even more imminent that it's right upon us. It's going to create more depth. Let's go blow up the yeah. world. The, let's go blow up the whole yeah, financial yeah. system. I mean, the, so the that, ten year, I mean, the tenure is the collateral that the entire global financial system is is based upon. It's the reference mark. It's it's like what library use needs to be. It's the reference mark for the entire financial system, and it's basically a global margin call on anyone who has debt globally. It, it's we're seeing that right now. I mean, global global PMI is under fifty. Europe Europe is looking really ugly, and Europe's whenever the yeah, whenever the fair whatever, but no, like but it's cheap. some it's catastrophic cheap. manufacturing now it's time numbers. To buy Europe, it's cheap. Always, it's always <laughs> cheap too. Yeah, um, it's like Japan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but so part of it. So part of it, we keep talking eight percent, you know, fiscal. It, it's six. It's actually six percent right now. Um, it's that maybe that's part of it. But I, th- I think the biggest reason, like, I, I'm different from Cuppy, as we look forward, is simply the inflation outlook. I mean, he his is going to be a lot higher than mine, and I think that colors all of our divisions on the way we view things um, in, in reality. So, uh, if I had his inflation forecast, I would I would think more than six percent. You know what I mean? But, but but going back to that six percent, I I think you that's that's about the point where the Fed has to throw in the towel and make up a reason to go buy them and get them back down. But I also think like real money is going to start finding its way in even over five percent. Um, I think there's a reason five percent's been tough to beat, and I think part of that reason is that there's a bid from from real money to go go step in there and buy them, especially. You know what you can, what you could have gotten tips tips at, you know, a month ago or whatever with real rates over two. Like, if you're a pension, you can you can make a lot of numbers work by just by just buying a whole bunch of those. You know, I, so that's part of it. I think the demand actually is higher than, than we think at those at those higher numbers. Um, but yeah, I agree I with mean, you. I think guys are thinking, you know, they have a six and a half percent return target. They get five, and they get a bit of appreciation as it snaps back into the fours. And yeah, I think they're going to be forced to sell uh, Mag Seven and buy Tens. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet, but I, I see it as inevitable. I, 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 I got to give you props, though. You called the top in inflation. Uh, I, I was an inflationista. Uh, I guess I'm an inflationista. Don't say what. 
But, you know, you, you called it uh, last year really well. And it's been sequentially pretty much, you know, you get the top. And you, you caught it all rolling over. And, you know, I, I tend to think inflation is going to rear its head again, but it hasn't yet. So, what do you, you know, congrats. Yeah, to, to, be fair, to be fair, you call it the resilient economy that we've had since. So yeah. we're, we've both got something right. And, <laughs> yeah. And a lot of other stuff wrong. But. And what would change or, 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 or um, so, sorry, Cuppy, what do you think the cat? So one of the things that I'm dealing with is I, we all know how consumer reliant the U.S. economy is. I also look at what's going on in Europe. We all know Europe's a basket case. We know the issues going on in China. I look at the fact that if you look at technology stocks in particular, 58% of their earnings come from overseas, right? So I, I think that my theory is anyway that we are less immune to overseas weakness than we have been in the past. Uh, 40% S&P earnings come from overseas. Um, <clears throat> so then I also look at the consumer spending ramp that has happened since January 2020, right? Since January 2020, consumer spending is up 20%. Biggest run over that period or over that shorter period of time in history. We all know that was driven by fiscal. If we look at excess savings rates, you know, you get some different numbers from people, but it looks like that money has come back down closer to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, I think we were seeing reports just a week or two or a month ago that it was below and then they updated those numbers and it's still a little above where it was. But but in my whole point, long way of long preamble, but the, the question I want to ask you is with that European weakness and with the the, the direct to consumer fiscal that, that was going on, that, that being a thing of the past and the higher rates, I, I just don't see it. I, I I don't disagree with you in the sense I, I don't understand these. I don't understand the whole thesis that we're on the edge of some cliff and we're about ready to slide in some morass and it's a depression. I certainly don't see that, but that's kind of my base case for why there's a recession going. I just don't see the thing that is going to take the place of fiscal that all the folks got during the pandemic that keeps the consumer spending at these levels. Is your argument simply that, yeah, you think the consumer spending is going to come down too and fiscal just overwhelms it? Or do you not think the consumer spending is going to come down? I think the consumer is going to come down a little because there's a lot of consumers that are tied to interest rates. Not so much that they uh, you know borrow money because a lot of them termed out. I mean, if you're a consumer, you, you have two expenses, really. It's your home that's 30 years. You have 28 years left on that. In your car, which is 60 months, and you have 40-something months left on it. Like, you, you, your expenses are termed out outside your credit card with a couple thousand bucks on it. Uh, so even your uh, student loan is termed, and you don't even have to pay it for another year. Like, I don't think it's, it's that. I think it's that the jobs that are tied to this uh, stuff that need low rates, they don't need as many people. And I think you're going to see a lot of people lose their jobs, see a lot of delinquency. I mean, we've already seen, uh, you know... Business is tied to consumer that are suffering. Uh, you've seen rollover in retailers. I think restaurants are probably going to be hit next. Uh, I think you're going to see suffering. Uh, if you ask what takes the place of uh, fiscal, I, I think fiscal takes the place of fiscal. <laughs> like, I just think they do it some more. It's so popular and there's so many lobbyists and every lobbyist needs to get their piece of flesh. And there's no, there's, I mean, there used to be a tea party in, in, in D.C. There's, there's nobody. They, I mean, the, the only thing they disagree on is which corporations get the, the stimmies. And I think they finally reached a point now you have a uniparty and they've decided that every corporation gets a stimmy. And I think they're just going to keep handing the money out. Yeah. And I mean, they'll move it around. I mean, now we're making what? We're making 150 uh uh, millimeter artillery shells. That's the new thing they want to stimmy. You know, last year it was wind power and next year there'll be another thing. They're just going to keep throwing money at it. What, okay. So let, switching it a little bit then, and I, I want to get your take on this because I, 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 I'm assuming, and based on our conversations, you're probably as frustrated as I am with the market this year. <laughs> uh, but, you know, just to pay, and our listeners hear me rant on this all the time, but just to pick one out in particular, I, I have watched Apple's multiple increase by 50% over the last 12 months, despite four consecutive quarters, which is a record of declining sales, right? And the Fed funds rate over the same period of time doubling. How do you square this? Is there, is this just kind of the last bullish gasp of, you know, is this our nifty 50 and is this 1965 or how do you, how do you square this? Do you think there's some merit to it? I mean, walk me through that. 
it's inflation protected uh, treasuries. That, that's what it is. Um, you get inflation protection. It, it, you know, it's a three percent yield versus four and a half, but you're inflation protected. And uh, I think people are looking at this and they're saying, I want inflation protection because I think inflation comes back up. And um, you also have the same uh, inflow issue where it's in every ETF. It's in every damn thing. Any money that ever goes into passive buys more Apple while Apple itself is buying more Apple with the buyback. And, you know, the, the net result of all of this is that, you know, everyone has to buy Apple. Yeah. Um, and then the people who own Apple, like my mom, I don't think she even knows how to log into her brokerage account. Like, she can't sell. <laughs> like, I don't think she knows the password. She bought it like 20 years ago. I don't think she knows how to, like, you know. But I think you just have a lot of people that just won't sell. They can't sell. They don't want to pay the taxes. Um, I just think guys are going to stay with it. You, you know, it, it's, 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 it's the, the old thing where there's, there's only so many shares left that are in the float. And... That, that, that number declines every day. Okay, so saying all that, we, we, and I, again, I, the listeners hear it from me all the time. You don't own it. I don't think you own any of those companies, do you? No, no. That's why I'm having a terrible year. <laughs> so if, if that's the case, what's keeping you from dipping your, dipping your toes into that? Because I buy curmudgeon cheap stocks that are five times earnings and less than book value and – I buy things that are rapidly growing with massive tailwinds. I mean, Apple isn't cheap. No. It's not really growing. No. There's not really any tailwinds. Uh, it doesn't check any of the boxes. I mean, I can tell you a bunch of really great companies that your listeners should buy, but Apple isn't what I do. But I kind of wish I did because I'd be having a better year. Jeez, yeah, I know. I know, man. Um, <clears throat> okay, so – I mean, if you were short value, long uh, mag seven, you're killing it. But I don't know a single guy who has that trade on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, <laughs> we have the inverse. Yeah, we have the. Yeah. Well, we're not short. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but we, when you look at the valuation spread and I was telling this to our, you know, I was having our clients or having this conversation with our clients. And I said, look, guys, there's just becomes a time where you got to take the pain when the valuation spread. If we're really looking at these like companies as opposed to stocks. Nobody would think about making these trades, right? Um, but let, let, let's let's flip it a little bit while we've got you here. Less on the economic smackdown because I think that we agree on more things than, than I thought we did. Anyway, um, it's just really a time. Yeah, no, I actually think Chase and I mostly agree. I mean, I, th I think the thing we disagree on is what the CPI looks like uh, a year exactly. from now and two years from now. That's yeah, it. yeah. So where do you think that we're going to be? I mean, let's so fast forward 12 months from now. What kind of CPI do you think we're looking at? I mean, so much of the CPI is driven by uh, energy inputs and agriculture. And look, we've had great, we've had unusual run of great weather, even, you know, with uh, Ukraine getting blasted, uh, there's plenty of uh, wheat and, uh, you know, ags just, the weather can't always be perfect. And uh, when it comes to uh, energy, we had a warm winter. Uh, it saved Europe from an energy crisis. It saved us uh, in the U.S. on the heating oil side. I think you're going to eventually have a cold winter. And I think, you know, you have 2 million barrels a day of demand growth. And I don't know where the supply comes from. I mean, this year they patched it basically with uh, Iran dumping all of its floating uh, oil. Russia producing a bit more. Uh, Permian was a little better than people expected, though it's kind of rolling over. Brazil beat a little. Can't, I mean, nothing's ever going to work out just right. I mean, look, for an entire year, Libya sort of got along. Like, Libya never gets along. Like, Libya's always offline. Like, so I, I just think, you know, we, we're in a world right now where I think we're drawing about a million to two million barrels a day. And you, you guys can debate me on that. And I, I might be off on that. And I think you have some uh, superf superfluous things happening, like Iran dumping its floating oil. And I don't think these are repeatable. And, you know, if, if you are like me and I think that, uh, you know, uh, energy prices are higher a year from today. I think inflation's higher. You know, maybe owner equivalent living doesn't go up, and that's a big piece of the basket. And you know, I think you know, Chase is probably right about that, and that probably rolls over. Uh, it's, it's big ballast on the CPI, but you know, and I, I don't think anyone can guess what's going to happen in agriculture because no one guesses the weather. But um, I tend to think energy goes higher, and I've gotten that wrong, that trade totally wrong for the last eighteen months. So you should, at this point, just ignore me. But I, I still think energy is going to be higher at some point, and you know maybe we don't have a, a supernova in oil like I had originally thought. But 
I think the new clearing price is probably closer to 100 than uh, 78 today. And, you know, uh, on a year over year basis, we're finally coming up against really easy comps in uh, CPI on the energy side. So any uptick on energy will really push the comps and the CPI. Uh, I'd love to know what you thought about that, Chase. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably view oil differently maybe for the next year. But I think if you if we compare notes on the next five years, it's probably very much the same. But I look at the, the weakness in the last few weeks, especially with time spreads coming all the way back in. And the fact that OPEC has a bunch of barrels they could still add to the market, like that that gives me pause for us going back to, you know, 150 plus in, in the next year or two. Um, but I, do I think that gets absorbed, you know, in the next three years to where OPEC's giving you everything they got and then it's not it's not enough to keep us from going above 150? Yeah, I think that I think that can easily happen, but I think that's more of a two, three year story than a in a one-year story, I think they have a lot to give back. I, I think they want to give it back at 120, but we'll, we'll see if they're able to do that. And, and clearly, from the from the data in the last few months, I mean, Russia Russia's basically already given it back. Um, and to your point, <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we basically had a perfect storm hit hit oil this year. Like every punch you could have thrown at it, we did with Iran coming back, like you said, with uh, Libya actually getting along for a while a lot of production coming out of Latin America. I don't think people realize like you, you can almost throw, throw a, a dart at, at the map of Latin America and whatever you hit, they probably are increasing production in the last year. Um, so, I mean, offshore production, I'm not going to, I don't think that's going down anytime soon. I think no. it'll be going up as we, as we, of course, we've been commiserating for a long time on. So I, I agree with that. And I actually agree a lot on the agriculture side. And I think, I think weather's going to become, in the next in the next five years, especially a, a massive story. I think agricultural prices will be a massive story, but for that next year, year and a half, I, like you, you alluded to it with owners equivalent rent. I just think shelter prices, almost on their own, are going to keep inflation down. I think wages are going to keep coming back down until they're, if not if not all the way back to normal, pretty close. And then that that takes a lot of the inflationary impulse out. But to me, most of the inflation. It wasn't like a new world. It was mostly a giant one-off from the biggest demand shock hitting at the same exact time as the biggest supply shock any of us had ever seen or hopefully ever will see again. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think we agree quite a lot on this stuff. Yeah, it's just the timing. Okay, now, while, while we've still got you here, this isn't going to be a debate because I think this position is probably one of, if not the biggest positions that either of us own, and we see pretty eye-to-eye on this. But again, I, I want to get your thoughts because you were at the recent conference as well. Uh, give us an update on where we're at on uranium. I, I keep getting more bullish this trade as time goes on. Um, I just feel talk about tailwinds. I feel like the tailwinds are increasing as it feels to me like culturally the shine is really starting to come off ESG. I hear more and more people on the proponent side of the nuclear debate. Um, what's got you so excited about uranium? Kind of lay out your bull thesis for our listeners. Again, they've heard it from us. But I know you've done a lot of work on this. You were at that conference. Kind of, kind of lay out where where we're at right now. So, I mean, in terms of uranium, it's, it's just simple supply and demand. That's how every commodity works. And you know, I think in 2024, you're going to see demand at about 210, 210 million pounds, and I think you're going to see supply at about 160. And so, there's a 50 million uh, deficit, or about 25 percent. I mean, if you know, if oil was 25 million barrels a day deficit. I mean, it, 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 I'd be retired now, <laughs> you know, and it, it, there's clearly inventories globally. There's mobile inventories. And I mean, we've had deficits since 2019 and they're using up those deficits, using up that inventory. But what I think is happening is that when a bunch of mines shut in 2016 to 2019, they shut because everyone thought nuclear power uh, was dying and there's going to be fewer power plants. And what we've learned is that nuclear is the cheapest, most efficient baseload power. And these plants were built very strong in the 70s, and you can extend them. And so a bunch of plants are getting extended that no one expected, but the mines didn't turn back on because the price of uranium hasn't been at an incentive price really until very lately for anyone to want to build a mine. And then it takes two, three, four years to uh, turn on an old mine. And uh, you know a greenfield might even take 10 years. And this is gap. And that gap, they're going to keep drawing down inventory. And lately, um, 
there's been a lot of uh, swaps, been a lot of basis trades. There's been a lot of people just moving inventory around amongst each other. I think the interesting thing at WNA conference is when you meet the guys in procurement at these utilities, they tell you, yeah, I mean, uranium's historically high. We're not buying here because the price is high. We're going to wait for it to drop. But then at the same time that they, you know, they, 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 they tell you, hey, by the way, we can't really find any uranium either to buy. There's, there's none available. I mean, if you look at tier one producers, Cameco has a million pounds a year of capacity left, and that's it. You know, if you haven't contracted, you're going to have to go contract somewhere else. But the somewhere else you co- you'd normally go contract doesn't exist. There's no other producers. Has Adam problem by having transport issues, and no one wants to take the risk that, you know, the, the, the transport gets cut off. And Niger just got shut down. So you're having to basically be a venture capitalist and fund a a mine in a funny country or fund a greenfield and do an offtake and effectively fund the thing uh, if you want uranium. And so these guys, you, you're talking to these utility guys and they're saying, you know, we lent some pounds to this other utility down the road two years ago and we're asking for our pounds back. And, you know, the guy says, well, I can't get any pounds to give you the back. And you're talking to traders and they're saying, I bought some pounds from this guy three months ago and I re- resold the pounds, you know, paper pounds. But now I have to actually go and deliver but you know the trade's breaking because the guy who sold them to me doesn't actually have the pounds, and he's basically uh, reneging. And I have to go find some pounds, but it's up you know twenty dollars since then on a half million pounds, so it's like ten million dollars. But I can't find any pounds; there's no pounds to be had. The guys at this conference are telling me all these stories, and then they're telling me, "Yeah, but the price is really high, and it can't go any higher." <laughs> and th- th- this reminds me a lot of GameStop, where you know they must have been sitting there. You know, everyone knew GameStop was going to zero. I mean. I don't understand why the, the business even exists, except they raised a ton of money. I can totally see the short sellers went from $3 to $10. And they're saying, man, it's really high price. Maybe I'll sell some more. And it goes to $20 and then it goes to 30 And all of a sudden they go, oh, wow. And then they panic and it goes to 500 And I think that's what's about to happen in uh, uh, uranium. And, you know, if you're the CEO of a nuclear power plant, uh, they pay you a couple million bucks a year to go golf with congressmen. Like your whole job is just to get an extra half penny a year uh, when, when they raise rates. Uh, you, your only mission in life is to not run out of uh, uranium because then the power goes out and then a bunch of rate payers are pissed at you and you get fired. That's a really cushy job. You don't have to do anything. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that these guys will pay any price you need to pay to get the uranium. It's a couple percent of the total operating costs. They don't really care. They pass it on to rate payers anyway. And they'll just go chase the price. And what's crazy also is that there's so many pounds that are short. You have all the fabricators that pre-sold stuff where they can't get the pounds. You have you know, guys like Orano, the French utility, that were expecting 8, 9 million pounds a year out of Niger. And they can't get their pounds, but they already pre-sold it. Uh, you, know, you can't be the French government and force majeure people. Like, I don't know where the pounds come from, but I mean, we're tracking a couple hundred million pounds by 2030 of guys who are functionally short. And, you know, it's the same thing as GameStop. So forget even the utilities that have to go buy because, you know, they, they have uh, unmet needs. You have guys who are genuinely short and they're reasonably well-financed entities like the French government. Like, I think they're going to be forced to go out there and buy at any price until they go bankrupt. I think you just see a, an insanity squeeze on the short side. And you can say, Cuppy, why hasn't this happened yet? Because, you know, guys have been talking about this for two years. And, you know, I, I would just say, just, just wait, just yeah, wait. And, you know... When you go to the conference, you, you, you ask the guy, so then why aren't you going to buy? You're like You're telling me and, and they're, they're just like, yeah, but there's no one to buy it from now. Like, what are we going to do? We're going to run the price up $30, $40 to get a couple hundred thousand pounds? Like, that doesn't help. We're just going to sit here on the bid. I mean, it, it's, it's a little oligopoly of uh, utilities. It's like 30, 40 guys globally, and there's like five guys on the mining side. Like, everyone knows each other. And they're all just sitting there playing this funny game. Someone has to blink. And right now, no one's blinking because they're doing swaps. Go read the Cameco most recent uh, Q3 filing. They expanded their, their swap facility. Look at what Orano is doing. They have a swap with Cameco. They, they're not repaying. Cameco said, don't go buy the pounds in the open market because Cameco's short. Cameco has uh, delivery requirements this year. They have to buy uh, 11 million pounds uh, in, in the last quarter this year. Admittedly, you know, they're going to get 4 million of those pounds in theory out of Kazakhstan. They have a mine there if the pounds ship. But, you know, they're still going to be short 7 million pounds. They have to go buy in the open market. They don't want a rado front-running them. So they just extended the swap. I mean, you could see this. Like, this reminds me a lot of uh, the, 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 the plumbing in the financial crisis in 2007 where 
you know, everyone owes bits and pieces to everyone. And the first guy who fails sets off the, the, the chain reaction. And I kind of feel like I'm Mike Burry. I mean, think of the movie. And he's sitting there and, you know, everyone's defaulting on their mortgages. And he calls the bank every couple hours. You know, what's the CDS bid at? And, you know, the, the, oh, the, the, the CDO squared is still a 102 bid. And he goes, how's it 102 bid? I'm paying a million dollars a week in, you know, carry fees. How's this? Like, have you looked at the, the underlying data? And the bank's like, Hasn't traded in six months. It's 102 bid. And then all of a sudden it traded at 20 cents. Yeah. And I feel like that's about to happen. Here. Yeah. Okay. Well, what, what, are, what are the similarities and differences? And I, and I haven't really looked into this. And, I, and I'm, I'm assuming you probably have. What, what are the differences and the similarities with the setup that we had in 2005 in uranium markets? And if I'm not mistaken, it, it, didn't that whole thing drive uranium? Didn't we get up to like 130 a pound or something like that back then? Is that correct? Yeah. What? That's correct. But what's, what's different in that cycle is that we were in a surplus the entire time. Uh, you had utilities panic because of some flooding at uh, – in Athabasca, and you had utilities panic, uh, but we're in surplus the entire time. This time we're in deficit. And even if you, you know, had unlimited amounts of money and you said, go build these mines, you still have to wait five years. I mean, all the easy ones like MacArthur River are already turned back on. Rabbit Lake, maybe it's three years to turn it on. That's only a couple million pounds. Like they're, they're turning on all the other ones that you could turn on. Uh, like Langer Heinrich's turning on. They've ran out of things that are easy to turn on. And even if they turn on all the easy ones, you still have a shortage. And then the demand is growing really, really rapidly uh, as China and India build these reactors at a crazy pace. You know, in America, it takes 20 years to build a reactor, but in China, they're doing it for three to five years. Is that and, all permitting, uh, Cuppy? What, what, what is that difference? Is it, I'm assuming it's just permitting and bureaucracy that you got to navigate here in the U.S.? Uh, incompetence too. Well, yeah. I mean, that's ever present, right? Yeah, no, I mean, like no one knows how to weld. It, it literally was the welds were done poorly because no one knows how to weld in America anymore. That's what set uh, Fogel back for like, 10 years. Sorry? I said, or France, apparently. <laughs> we are. What happened, in, uh, Fran what, what France. happened in France? What are you alluding to, Jace? They had a lot of nuclear plants offline and same thing. It was like, there was a lot of welding problems. And stuff. Oh, okay. Well, France also ran out of fabricated material. I mean, they did the cardinal sin where you hit zero and they decided they were going to save the, their last fuel rods for, for wintertime, which is, it's, it's crazy to be the CEO of a reactor and say, yeah, we kind of budgeted this wrong. We ran out of, uh, out of pounds. And, you know, that's the nature of a socialist country where, you know, they tell you what the price you're going to get on your electricity is and the price of uranium goes up and, you know, your price of, you know, the expensive stuff, which is conversion, uh, enrichment, fabrication, that all goes up. And you decide, no, we, we, the numbers don't work. We're not going to do it. We're going to turn the, the plant off. I mean, we're, we're just sending the electricity to Germany anyway. What do we care? Hey, speaking of Germany, have they done an about face on the closing down of that nuclear facility of theirs? Or did they did they follow through and close it? <laughs> they shut it down. Yeah. They're done. Like they're completely out. What, why? Do, do, was that all just fears of a, a mushroom cloud over Berlin or something like that? I mean, what? What I, I didn't delve into that. I just laughed at it as being more climate idiocy. But what? 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 How did they justify that? They joined a climate cult, <laughs> which is why they're doing a, burning a bunch of coal now. They hired Greta Thunberg as their uh, <laughs> natural resource advisor, right? Yeah, they're, they're burning lignite instead. It's, it's clean. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> All right, man. Hey, Cuppy, yeah, I, go I, ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I got one quick question. Uh, in the yeah, latest sure. Kedem, which speaking of, if you're not subscribed to, go subscribe to. Um, you, you guys kind of hinted at like some like nursing home and like assisted living type stuff kind of. And it seems like a new idea that you're kind of maybe fleshing out. But I thought I think that's an awesome idea and something absolutely worth looking into. So if, if you have anything to, to, to say about that, um, I would love to hear it because I'm excited about this theme. Yeah, I think it's a great theme. I mean, we haven't ha found the right way to play it, quite honestly. Uh, it's kind of why we put it out there and, you know, said, give me your ideas. Uh, you've had overbuilding forever in assisted living. And, you know, because you, you build it and then they come. And you can look at the demographic data and say that, you know, granny's going to need assisted living in about three years. And it's finally caught up where granny needs assisted living like now. And, uh, you know, they, there hasn't really been uh, a lot of new capacity brought online. So it's been really miserable the last five, six years, a ton of bankruptcy. 
Plus, you've had your costs going up with labor and wages. And so there's, there's a shortage of supply and you're seeing occupancy at some of the big publicly traded companies where they announce data monthly. It's just going up 100, 200 bips every month. And, you know, you need reasonably high 75, 80 percent occupancy to break even and then everything else is gravy. And you're in the gravy phase of this now. And then you start pushing pricing also. And I think, you know, you're going to see you know, occupancy, operating leverage and pricing. And I think it's going to be uh, really attractive. It's going to be a home run. I mean, I think that's held me back from this trade is just that uh, I think cap rates go up and I think financing costs go up. And, you know, it's, it's where I, you know, my, my, my uh, predisposition to rates going higher has held me out of the trade, which is unfortunate because the stocks are working and the data is working. Uh, I should have just closed my eyes and buy it. Bought it, but I think this is a sort of trend that's going to go for a very long time. It takes two years to build another one of these facilities, and there's no one out there really wanting to commit capital right now because it was so miserable for so long. I mean, one of the things we do at Cadm is try to track these trends that people aren't talking about. You know, I think that's I think there's, there's real legs to this one. Love no, it. that's that's fascinating. Yeah, thanks. Uh, didn't we Chase? Did we get into a yeah? yeah. We, we got we got into one of them. It, it's a terrible company, but same, but the, the reason the reason I, I like it is just I, I think that uh, those those utilization rates are gonna they're just gonna keep popping. Theirs is like mid seventies, I think, and you know it, they can't really make money here. But you know, if they go to get up in the eighties and and raise prices, they absolutely. When can. when you say it's a horrible company, what you mean is that it's deep value. That's what that's what you mean. It, the, those are synonyms. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm like Kofi, like I get, give me the worst thing that with a bunch of hair on it, they can just get a little bit better. That, that's where, that's where like you get the, no, I was just going to say, we'll keep it clean for the kids that are listening, but it, it's the famous Kofi line, which is the best time to invest or do you, the most money is made when you go from totally aft to just really bad. Right. So Pretty something much. along those lines which is yeah, the clack. These companies, they all trade, you know, even, you know, adding in the debt just on an EV basis, they, they trade at large discounts or replacement costs. That's usually a good starting point for an investment. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's Especially because the data is getting better every month. Yeah, well, like you said, exactly. the, the other thing I love is that demographic trend. You know what I mean? Like that it's coming at you like a freight train. It's not stopping anytime soon. No, it's no. not stopping. And, Plus that demographic also, because they all own their own homes, they paid off their mortgage. They actually have the cash in their bank accounts to pay for these. You don't have to hit up the kids and say, you got to pay for grandma. So grandma's going to the, the VIP uh, old age home. Well, and she owns, and she owns <laughs> Apple, right? <laughs> Which she's held for the last 15 years. And uh, she's just, yeah, camped out in cubes for the last 20 uh, years. She, she, she can pay, for, you know, eight grand a yeah, month. She's not hurting. All right, buddy. Well, hey, thank you so much for doing this. It was great to have you on, Chase. Also, thank, thanks for joining us as well. And for those of you out there listening, if you don't follow Cuppy on Twitter, I'd strongly recommend it at H Cuppy, K A at H K U P P Y, and then Ketum.com, the event driven newsletter that we're subscribers to. Uh, it, 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 this is, I, and I think it's a great tool and I'm not just saying this cause you're on the show, but I think it's a great thing for professional investors and retail alike to, uh, subscribe to, and they can get that at Ketum.com. Any specials you guys are running? What, what's the entry? What, what's like the, if a guy wanted to get started at Ketum, what, what's the, what's the spiel? Um, we track about 25, uh, event driven strategies, uh, corporate events, uh, you know, set off a change in uh, the trajectory of a business. And I feel like all these supercomputers are really good at taking a linear progression, but they're not really good at when some corporate event totally changes things because you have to actually use your head as opposed to uh, an Excel model. Right. And there's just opportunities created there. We also flag a lot of uh, second, third tier macro trends that people aren't talking about. Like uh, old age homes, we, you know, we were early on aerospace, sub subcomponent suppliers. We, very early in uranium, I guess. We, we've we've hit material about 30, stuff. 40 of these. Yeah. yeah, coal, oil, um, you guys were on. You guys have had a, had a, a heck of a battle. We, we, we had a, a thing on specialty metals, specialty alloys that go into aviation and military. And I mean, these things are home runs. Like, look at the backlogs. We're, we're talking, you know, two times the all-time high in backlog. And I mean, after, after backlog goes, then pricing. And you know, the stocks keep going up. Like, we, we've hit a lot of these things. And we try to... 
flag a few things a year. So I appreciate the plug. And obviously I'm a big fan of uh, Pinecrone as well. So yeah. if you're not subscribed. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. It's, it feels like I'm plugging my own, but I'm not. Chase is the proprietor of Pinecrone. But I've been a subscriber of that since I think 2019, maybe even 2018. So I'm a huge fan. Yep. I think it was pre-pandemic we met up in Los Angeles. Yes, so. yes. Yep. I read every issue. There we go. Well, you know what we need to do? We got to have we got to have a, a a meeting or some kind of conference down in in your neck of the woods. Got to get down there to Puerto Rico. Yeah, come to Puerto Rico. You guys won't go anywhere yeah. else. It's great. Yeah, here. we got to do that. I've only I've only stopped through Puerto Rico on the way to other places, and I've always wanted to get down there and stay stay a while. So uh, we'll have to make that happen. Anyway, pal, thanks for coming on. Great to have you again. Thanks for inviting me. You bet. And and all of you guys, thanks for uh, thanks for subscribing to the cast and listening to the show. Hopefully, you guys got as much out of it as we did gotta run but we will be back next week got another great interview uh dialed up for next friday you're not going to want to miss until then have a great weekend we'll see you next week you're talking you're or excuse me you're listening to the know your risk radio podcast download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com the opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.